Song of Solomon, chapter 5. And if you found that, and if you're able to, would you stand as we read our introductory text this evening? And we'll be reading from verse 1 down through verse number 8. Verse number 1, I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse, I have gathered my myrrh with my spice, I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey, I have drunk my wine with my milk, eat, O friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. Verse 2, this is the farm girl, she's had a nightmare, and she's uh, recounting this nightmare to uh, Solomon's wives, or the harem. She says in verse 2 down through verse 8, she says, I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. I have put off my coat, how shall I put it on? I have washed my feet, uh, how shall I defile them? My beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door, and... My bowels were moved for him. I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchman that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if ye find my beloved, that ye tell him that I am sick of love. The title of the Bible study tonight is this, The Qualities of a Christian Husband. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to understand the passage tonight and make the appropriate applications as we go. And Lord, we pray that, that you just drive home these truths, Lord, and and um, help us to understand that Christian manhood and Christian womanhood is so vital and important to be modeled uh, by those who call themselves your children. And so, Lord, as we look at these things, help it to make sense. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, again, quickly to recap the narrative here, there's a young girl. Uh, she is um, described as a Shulamite girl, and we'll see that a little bit later on in the book that uh, she is from Shulam. She's a Shulamite. She's a farm girl. She's grown up in the home of farmers, and she's been in charge of an orchard. One day she's out working in the orchard, and Solomon sees her. Uh, he, she catches his eye and orders to have her prick, picked up and brought into the palace. There she is in the palace against her will. She's already engaged to a man who is a shepherd, and Solomon is going to try to convince her to marry him, and she doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, last week's Bible study, we saw Solomon's second seduction, and we saw him come in on his bridal car, his uh, chariot of sorts, uh, and laying there on that bridal car, he tries to woo her and win her over by talking about how pretty that uh, uh, he thinks that she is physically, and she goes on to explain to Solomon Listen, I have a love, and it's not you, it's someone else. And so uh, that comes to an end, and we see, if you would look back at chapter 4 and look at verse number 16, she daydreams about the boy throughout chapter 4, 
as though they're having a conversation. And at the very end uh, of the daydream, she says to him, her fiancé, her beloved, she says, Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. We talked about the importance of keeping yourself uh, for that one person uh, that uh, God has for you in marriage. And uh, making sure that if you're here and you're unmarried or you're listening to this online and you're unmarried, that you not open up your sexuality to just anyone that comes along, uh, that you wait until you're married. And this young lady has waited, and she says to her fiancé, she says, this is for you, and now I am. Uh, uh, that time is ready. I'm ready for it to happen. Chapter 5, now I just want to uh, add this before we move on. The, the Word of God is inspired. Uh, it's preserved. Uh, every part of it, in my opinion, strong opinion, is true. Uh, the Bible makes the claim that every word would be preserved, and I believe every word is preserved. I believe we have a perfect book in front of us. But one thing you need to understand is that the chapter and verse uh, markers are not inspired. That was added by man. And aren't you glad that it was? Because if I said to you, open up to the book of Isaiah, go about two-thirds of the way there, and uh, look down for um, uh, the verse that begins, or the words that begin with this, the paragraph that begins with this, it would take us about 25 minutes just to get everybody on a Sunday morning to the same place. So the chapter and verse markers are great because it helps us navigate through the Bible, but those are not inspired. Now, with that said, I don't believe they always got the breaks right. Um, and again, this is just my opinion versus the opinion of those that, that, uh, that put those in there. But because they're not inspired, I will say that chapter 5, verse 1 should probably be in chapter number 4. Uh, look at chapter 5 and verse 1, and what we find is the, the shepherd boy, he is answering the farm girl. So she says to him in the end of chapter 4, come into my garden. Chapter 5, um, where it says, I am come down through where it says, I have drunk my wine with my milk, uh, through that part of the verse, that is the shepherd boy speaking to the farm girl, okay? And then she replies from eat down to the end of the verse. All right, look at uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Um, uh, here we have the shepherd boy. He says, I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with, uh, with my honey. I have drunk my, my wine with my milk. This is her daydreaming, picturing this conversation taking place between the shepherd boy uh, and herself. And she is imagining him saying on a, you know, supposed wedding day, I am come and I am going to enjoy every aspect of being married to you. And the farm girl replies in the last part of the verse, she says, eat, O friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. Now, I'm not 100% sure who the friends are. Is it possible that she's imagining her wedding day and she's speaking to the guests there at the reception? Eat. Enjoy the reception. Uh, that's possible. Is it possible that she's turned to the harem and she's told the harem, rejoice and 
eat uh, because I have found my beloved in this imagination and um, uh, we've come together. I don't know who the friends here are, uh, but um, she's saying to some group of people, uh, eat, oh friends, let's celebrate the coming together of our love. And so uh, that kind kind of brings us up to speed on things. Now, the young lady is captured and taken into the palace and she has two dreams. The first dream is arguably a nightmare because she's looking for the young man and part of it she's lost. But that, uh, that dream ends well. You may remember if you were here in the first dream, she leaves the palace, she's wandering around town, and she finds the watchmen or the police officers, and the police officers tell her, we don't know where he is, and shortly after she leaves the police officers, she finds her beloved, the shepherd boy, and she won't let go of him, she grabs hold of him, she won't let him go, and do you remember where she took him? She took him to Mama's house. You remember that? She took him to see Mom. And uh, I talked about the, the sweetness of that, that she went and saw Mom. And I encourage you to get your parents involved in the dating process. And so the dream started out rough and then ended really happy. This dream is not going to end happy. This dream is just a horrible, horrible nightmare. In fact, point, uh, well, before I give, get in, well, I'll give you point one, then I'll make these uh, statements here. Point number one is the horrible nightmare. The Horrible Nightmare. Now, um, the title of the Bible study is The Qualities of a Christian Husband. Before I get into the nightmare, I just want to say that Christian manhood, it's, it's, it's getting harder and harder to find. Harder and harder to find. Harder and harder to find a man who is a real man. And, and when I say a real man, I'm not talking about Someone who, you know, is John Wayne, you know, who can smoke a cigarette with one hand and punch a cow between the eyes with the other. You know, that's not really what I'm talking about when I'm talking about manhood. I'm not talking about someone who's rough and gruff and crass and, you know, belches real loud. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about manhood. Um, I'm talking about a man who, when he gives his word, he keeps his word, you know, he commits to something and to his own hurt, he follows through on it. I'm talking about men who show up on time all the time and they're even early and being late, you know, people are wondering, was he in a car accident? You know, because it's just that's uncharacteristic. I'm talking about a man who knows how to uh, communicate, communicate, you know, communicate, like use your words to let someone know what's going on, like reply to text messages in a timely fashion and return phone calls and, you know, let people know what's going on, okay? And you say, well, that's not just manhood. That's, you know, being a good, responsible human. I get it, but men, we have to have a starting point here, right? I'm talking about men who know how to listen because that's part of communication. You know how to turn your ear on and listen, and not always have an answer for everything that's said to you, especially if a woman is speaking to you, sometimes she just wants to know that you understand her emotion and you don't have to fix her problems. <laughs> I have to be reminded of that one sometimes, right? And she was like, quit offering me a solution and just listen. Right. I tell other people to do that work, and then I come home and I have a hard time doing that, right? Um, uh, Christian manhood. Um, Beyond just being married and, and knowing how to handle the other gender, 
just being a responsible uh, a person that has a, a conviction uh, and a backbone that knows how to stand up for what they believe and do so with a kind demeanor. And we have men who have been emasculated and they, they, they act more like a female than a male oftentimes. Uh, they're more emotion-led than logic-led. And we need men who will be men. God made men to stand up and lead, but not to be mean in the process. God uh, wants... I have one woman in here that agrees with me. Amen? Um, God made uh, men to, um, uh, to, 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 to help take the woman that God has given him, or just a, a mixed crowd and say, I'm going to lead the way. I'm going to do it through prayer. I'm going to do it carefully. I'm not going to let other people push me around, but I don't have to be a jerk in the process. I can be kind uh, about it all the same. And that gentleness, that, uh, that gentle firmness, gentle firmness. Let me say that again. Gentle firmness. You can be firm and be kind while you're being firm. Boy, that's a lost art today. That's a lost art today. People are either rage monsters or they're pushovers. And sometimes they're both. They get pushed around, pushed around, pushed around, pushed around. And when they're tired of getting pushed around, they, ah, they blow up. How about you just have a backbone and you're nice about it? That seems to work a lot better. And so that Christian manhood, that Christian manhood, and uh, we're going to see in just a moment here, and, and generically we'll see, but... We'll see in just a moment here that this young lady, this Shulamite girl, this farm girl was madly in love with her fiancé because she respected him. She respected him. All of the things I just mentioned a few moments ago about what Christian manhood is, can I tell you what that all boils down to? I hope you're listening tonight. It all boils down to respect. When I'm doing premarital counseling or I'm doing marital counseling and I have a marriage, married couple and their marriage is struggling or I have a couple who's looking to get married and you know, ah, oh, they're in love. It's funny, when I go through my premarital, premarital counseling material with a couple who's in love but not married, I go through it real fast. Uh-huh, pastor, uh-huh. It's all theory to them. I get a couple who's been married for, you know, 5, 10, 15 years and they're ready to kill each other. And uh, they're not, you know, they're not uh, sitting real close to each other in my office. They're like sitting on opposite ends of the office. You know, um, he's got a knife in his hand and she's got a gun. Not quite, but, you know, it's almost on that level, right? Um, and, man, it takes me forever to get through my notes because they're in the middle of it and they're having a hard time. One of the things I go over in my uh, marriage counseling notes, premarital counseling notes, I will look at the young lady and I will say to her, can you think of anything more important in marriage, can you think of anything more important in this relationship right here than to know, than for you to know that he loves you with all his heart and you are the apple of his eye? You know, I've asked that question to a hundred women, fifty women, two hundred women. I don't know at this point. I've never had a single woman look at me and say, "Yeah, there's something I want more." Every woman looks back at me and says, "Yeah, you know what? That's what I want out of this marriage." I want to know that he loves me with all his heart. And then I look at her and I say to her, can I tell you something? That is not what he wants. That is not what he wants. He does not want you to love him 
above all. And she looks at me like, what? How could this be? And I look at the man and I say to him, can you think of anything more important in the whole world when it comes to this relationship right here that you want more than to know that that woman sitting next to you respects you? And I've never had a man tell me no. Men are built by God to be respected by the woman in their life. And when a man does not feel like he is respected by his wife, he is not happy in his marriage. He is not happy in his marriage. Now, I'll tell you the difficult spot I find myself in as a pastor and as a counselor. It is very hard for me to tell a woman to respect her husband when her husband is not respectable. It's difficult. And it's hard for me to tell a man to love his wife when his wife's not acting real lovable. But someone's got to take the lead. Someone's got to take the lead. And I would say, man, men, be respectable. And you know what? Oftentimes your wife becomes lovable. Respectable, respectable. This woman in this passage deeply respected her fiancé. Well, what about this horrible nightmare? Let me give you an A, B, C, D, and E here, okay? Letter A, notice the call of the dream, the call of the dream. Look down at verse number 2, and we see here what's going on. She says, I sleep, I sleep, but my heart waketh. She's recounting the nightmare to the harem. And by the way, if you're marking in your Bible who is speaking when, from verse 2 down through verse 8, the farm girl is speaking to the harem, okay? Uh, she says here, I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, uh, for my uh, head is filled with dew and my locks with the drop of the night. So uh, she says here, My eyes sleep, but my heart is awake. You know what that means? She's having a dream. She's having a dream. She's asleep, but her mind is racing. And here she's having a dream. So what is she dreaming? She's dreaming that, that she's asleep, and in this sleep, that her fiancé is right outside the door of her room, and he is calling for her. He's knocking on the door, and he's saying, Open the door for me. Let me in. I, my hair is wet from the dew outside, and, and, and I'm cold, and, and let me in. The call of the dream. Let her be notice The confusion of the dream. The confusion of the dream. So she's dreaming about being asleep, and, and while she's viewing herself right asleep, she hears this call from outside the door, and it is her fiancé, it is her beloved, and he is calling for her to let her in. But then that's where things get a, a little weird. Look at verse 3. She says, I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? What's she saying there? She's saying, I'm, I'm in my bed clothes. I'm, I'm undressed. I, 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 before I open this door, I've got to get my coat on. I've got to get my house coat on. And she's thinking, I wash my feet right before I go to bed. And, and, and now I'm being awakened. I'm being stirred. And, and now I've got to get out of bed. My feet are, are going to get dirty trying to get to the door. And, and, and Have you ever been woken up in the middle of the night and you're discombobulated? You're just kind of turned around and you don't know which way ways up and down. Sometimes if I'm really woken up out of a deep sleep, I'll say to Angela, what day is it? What day? Have you ever lost what track of what day it was? Uh, I have woken up on a Monday morning before and looked at the clock and it said like 8.30 and I thought, oh, it's Sunday and, and, and church is starting and I'm just getting out of bed. 
That's a horrible feeling. And I'm, getting, I'm, that. I'm running around, and, and church is starting, and I'm home, and oh, it's Monday. Oh, boy, I'm safe. It's okay. And so here this young lady is discombobulated, and she says, I've put off my coat, and, 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 and I'm trying to get that on, and I'm, I'm getting my feet dirty. Um, uh, let's keep reading verse 4. She says, uh, my beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him. He's shaking the doorknob. He's sticking his finger up by the keyhole, and uh, he's trying to get in the door. He's, he, he, he wants to see her. They've been separated and apart. They want to come together. And she says here that when she realizes in her dream who this is that's out the door, uh, uh, her, her bowels move within her. She's got butterflies in her stomach. She's really, really excited to see him. Verse 5, I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, and my uh, fingers with sweet-smelling uh, sweet myrrh upon the handles of the lock. What's that mean? That means she had, like, lotion on her hands, and she was trying to open the doorknob, and it was slippery, and she couldn't get the door open, right? And so she, she, she hears him out there, and she's trying to get the door open, and she's fumbling to get her coat on, and she, she's coming over to the door, and she tries to open up the door, and... She can't get the door open in her dream because her hands are slippery. So we see the confusion of the dream. The call of the dream, her beloved is outside the door knocking, Hey, let me in. I just came in from outside. My hair is wet with the dew of the evening and, and, and let me in. And the confusion of the dream, she's trying to hurry up and get her coat on. She's worried about getting her feet dirty. She's got a lotion on her hands and can't get the door open. Let her see. We see the climax of the dream. The climax of the dream. Look down at verse number 6. She says, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. You know how dreams don't always make sense? You ever been trying to recount a dream to someone, and they're looking at you like, what? And you think, well, I... I you know what? It kind of made sense when I first wake up, woke up, but now that I'm recounting this dream, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, in her dream, he's out there knocking on the door, and she can't get the door open. She finally gets the door open, and he's vanished. He's gone. And, and he was calling for her, and now she can't find him. And she's looking around, and she can't find him, and she's calling for him, and there's no response. And uh, boy, um, uh, this really gives me... By the way, uh, those that want to argue that Solomon is the beloved, why would have she had a nightmare when Solomon lived in the same temple and she had access to him and she could have married him at any point? Um, she's having this nightmare because she's been put in a traumatic situation having been kidnapped. At least this is my really strong opinion. And she's wanting to get out of the palace and find her beloved. And she, she, she opens the door. She's got her house coat on. She looks and, and he's gone. And, and, and this uh, dream has gone from, from a possible good thing to being absolutely horrible. And it only gets worse. Notice letter D, the crush of the dream. Look at verse number seven. In her dream, she goes looking for him out into the city. She says, The watchmen, now earlier in the book, we said that the watchmen were like the town police officers. The watchmen are the police officers that went about the city, found me, and they smoked me. They wounded me. Well, last time they helped her. This time 
they're, they're hurting her. It says here, the keeper of the walls took away my veil from me. Now, um, she goes to the police and she's looking for help from the police and the police don't help her. They hurt her. Now, I don't know how you were raised. Uh, I know how I was raised. I was taught that if I ever got lost in the store when I was a little kid or I was out and about in town and, and I lost my way to, to go, go to a police officer and they will help you. How many of you were kind of told that same thing growing up? Go to a police officer and they'll help you. And so I'm sure, you know, going all the way back in the Bible time, that, that, that similar things were taught. And, you know, throughout history, police officers have been viewed as good guys, not bad, at least by most of society. People who grow up in high crime areas usually don't view police very well. But um, I'm sure she was taught growing up, hey, if you have a problem, go to the, the town watchman or the town police officers. And uh, in the last room she went there and they tried to help her but couldn't. This time they don't help her. They catch her and they beat her up. They beat her up in this dream. And then uh, verse number, the end of verse number 7 says they took her veil away from her. Now, uh, some would read into that, that to say that she was raped. Uh, no, it doesn't say that. And so we don't want to make an assumption, but at the very least, she's been unclothed. She's been unclothed, right? She would have covered up going out, and they've beaten her, they've ripped her clothing from her, and uh, she's been left in an immodest state in this dream. Boy, um, things have just gone from bad to worse. And you can see that in this nightmare, um, she's just having a, a horrible, horrible time. Notice letter E we see uh, the charge of the dream, the charge of the dream. So she finishes recounting this dream uh, to the harem, and look at verse number 8. This is a completely different tone than she struck with the harem before. She says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if ye find my beloved, uh, that ye tell him that I am sick of love. I am love sick. She finishes telling this dream to the harem, and she says to uh, Solomon's wives and concubines, she says, at the end, she says, if you happen to see my beloved, tell him I am ready to get out of here. Tell him that I'm ready for this nightmare to be over. Tell him that I am madly in love with him, and I want this to be over. Now, isn't that a little bit different than when she said earlier in the book, when she said, stir not love, stir not up love, nor awake my love, a beloved uh, from his sleep? And she's saying, don't stir up love. Well, now things have gotten to a place where she's so desperate that she tells the harem at the end of this nightmare, she says, if you see him, tell him I love him and tell him I want to go home. I want out of here. And so we see the horrible nightmare. Number two, notice the harem's question. The harem's question. Now, if there is one great piece of evidence that would point to uh, the um, Solomon not being the good guy, but the bad guy, and that there being an outsider as the fiance, I would say verse 9 is as strong of a piece of evidence as anything else in the book. Look at verse number 9. In, in my Bible, or rather in my notes, verse 9 I have marked as the harem talking to the farm girl. So again, if you're marking in your Bible, as I'm encouraging you to do, verse number 9 is the harem speaking to the farm girl, okay? Look what the harem says to the farm girl after she recounts this nightmare. They say to her, what is, um, uh, what is thy beloved more than another beloved? 
O thou fairest among women? What is thy beloved more than another beloved, thou that dost so charge us? Now, in uh, chapter number 1, uh, when she's first brought into the palace, they view her as a threat to marry Solomon. And they call her fairest among women. And I, and I told you in chapter 1 that I believed that to be sarcasm, right? Oh, you little beauty queen. Oh, you little beauty queen. I'm not so certain that the harem is being sarcastic in verse 9. I think at this point they've got it pretty well figured out that she is no threat to them to marry Solomon. Solomon has come on her twice trying to seduce her, and both times she's pushed Solomon away, and now she's standing there telling them about this nightmare that she's had where she was looking for her beloved and she got uh, uh, beat up um, and bloodied in the process. And then she looks at them and says, Please, if you happen to see my fiancé, would you tell him for me that I'm lovesick? Now, I want you to understand the context of verse 9. These 140 women that make up the harem, they knew Solomon better than she did. Would you all agree with that statement? They were married to Solomon. She was not married to Solomon. Okay? Um, They would have known Solomon better than her. So why would they ask her, What's so great about your beloved if her beloved was Solomon? You all following my logic here this evening? Look back at verse number 9. And look here. They clearly don't know her fiancé. And they're married to Solomon. What is thy beloved more than another beloved, O thou fairest among women? What is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? Well, what was she charging them? She was charging them to find her beloved, and tell him that uh, that that uh, he's missed and that she's lovesick for him. They're saying to him, what makes your man so special? What is so special about the man that you're going to marry? You know, um, they had a bad idea of love. Now, I wasn't planning on doing this, but really quick, turn back to chapter 1 and look at the very beginning of the book. Chapter 1, look at the very beginning of the book here. The book opens with the harem talking about Solomon. From verse 2 down through verse number 4, the harem is speaking seductively, sexually, perversely about Solomon and his body and their physical relationship with him. Look here. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured out. Therefore do the virgins love thee. You know what they're saying? The virgins can't wait to lose their virginity to you. Virginity to you, O Solomon, you hunk. Right? Keep reading. Draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. The king's brought me in and slept with me. You see here the... The emphasis is on sex. The emphasis is on looks. The emphasis is on the physical. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. Now, uh, again, we talked about that at the very, very beginning, how that they had upright 
they had right and wrong turned around, right? And they were worshiping the sex act and a virgin losing their virginity to Solomon. And now they look at this farm girl and they say, what makes your fiancé better than our husband? This man that you're so crazy about that you're turning down Solomon for, what makes him so special? And so she proceeds from verse 10 through verse 16 to tell the harem who, uh, what she thinks of her fiancé, why it is that she respects him so. Hence the title of the Bible study, The Qualities of a Christian Husband. Okay. So point number one, we've seen the horrible nightmare. Point number two, the harem's question. Point number three, notice the honor the girl gives. The honor the girl gives. Look at verse number 10 with me. Let's read down through verse 16. She says back to the harem, and by the way, if you're marking in your Bible, verse 10 down through verse 16, this is the farm girl uh, speaking to the harem about the shepherd. Farm girl speaking to the harem about the shepherd. Okay? She says, my beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. I'll give you more explanation in a few minutes. Uh, his head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers. His lips like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with a, a, a burl. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marbles set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Okay, notice letter A, his value to her. His value to her. Look at verse number 10. She says, my beloved is white and ruddy. Look at this next phrase, the chiefest among 10,000. She says, there's 10,000 men out there, and he is number one in my book above all the rest. Hey, ladies that are married in here tonight, listen up. Don't get your eyes wandering looking at other men. Can I tell you what men do? Men look at the beauty of other women. They're distracted by the beauty of other women. I'm talking about married men. You know what married women usually do? Now, in some cases, they look at the beauty, if you will, of another man. But usually what they do is they look at the stability that another man provides. And they say, well, if I was married to him... This is the stability. I, the stability he gives his wife, I wish he'd provide for me. You know, you make sure you work hard to look at your man and make him the chiefest among 10,000. You value the man that God gave you. Uh, the illustration I used Sunday morning about discontentment with the two mules that had their heads through the fence, eating the grass on the other side, they got their head, their heads caught up in the... You know, that's what a lot of people do in marriage. Here, here's what I found in marriage. There ain't no perfect spouse. There just isn't. Um, I've got shortcomings. Angel's got shortcomings. But you know what? Every single one of you in here, you have shortcomings. And you know what? You look across the way and you see someone else and you think, Oh man, if I was married to them, my life would be a whole lot happier. My life would be a whole lot better. The grass shore is greener on that side of the fence. And I would just remind you, there's a whole lot of dirt beneath that grass. And if there's grass that's really green, there's probably a whole lot of manure that made that grass green. You be mindful of that. You be mindful of that. You need to value 
You need to value your spouse, her, uh, his value to her. Uh, right there it says white and ruddy. Uh, ruddy means red, and so he was probably a white boy with red hair. Okay, That's what we gather from that verse. Um, uh, notice letter B quickly, his visible qualities. His visible qualities. Now, she's going to describe how handsome he is. And I like to think of verse 11 through 15 as a description of me 10 years ago. Amen? Uh, th- those days have passed me by. I'm, I'm not the, the good-looking, handsome, strong man. Listen, I thought I was strong, and then Brother John asked me to help him move. And I realized when I have my hands on my knees and I'm huffing and puffing, I'm not so strong anymore. We had Kyle Codney there helping us move today, and he's running laps around me, right? He's not, didn't even break a sweat. His hair, not one hair out of place. He's zipping up and down the stairs, and I'm standing there after about five minutes, and I'm going, I can't breathe. And uh, that's not an exaggeration. So I thought, I remember the day when I was his age, I was able to do the same thing. Those days have passed me by. But here she gives a description of uh, his physique. Look at verse 11. She says, his head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. Now I picture her standing there on stage with her hands up by her heart and her head tilted sideways. And she's just lovesick describing the way that he looks to her. Um, Verse 12, his eyes, his eyes are as the eyes of doves by the river of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers, his lips like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with a beryl. His belly is bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marbles set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. Now, remember, this couple is engaged, okay? And I want you to notice in this description, the most sensual thing, the the most sensual things that she talks about are his lips. And what does she say about his lips? She says they're like lilies, all right? I'm not getting a whole lot of sexuality out of that. Uh, and then she says that his, his stomach is like is overlaid with sapphires. You know what she's saying? She's saying, my fiancé has rock-hard abs. That's what she's saying. He is cut. He is chiseled. Amen? Um, Angela's not saying anything about my rock-hard abs. I promise you that. Um, but um, I have a six-pack covered up by a six-keg of root beer. Amen? Um, but uh, she's pointing out his physique, his visible qualities. Letter C. Um, uh, and let me, before I move on, let me just say this. Find, even if your husband isn't the best looking man in the world, find something about his physical appearance that you can flatter and enjoy and appreciate and focus on that and point that out to your husband. He will appreciate it. Letter C. Notice his verbal sweetness. His verbal sweetness. Look at verse 16. She says, his mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. Now, she's already talked about his lips. So I don't think when she's talking about his mouth in verse 16 that she's talking about a physical thing. I think what she's talking about is the way he speaks to me is sweet. The way he communicates with me is sweet. Um, We talked a moment ago about Christian qualities uh, or rather Christian manhood, let me just say here to the men in the room, 
If you want your wife or your future wife to respect you, then you need to learn how to speak to her in a way that is disarming and loving and kind and caring. Um, yelling and screaming and berating and angerous, temperous rages is a good way to turn off the flame in your fiancé, your girlfriend, your wife's heart. Learn how to communicate. Learn how to speak. Here's the truth. Men are from, what's the phrase, men are from Mars? Women are from Venus? Is that how it goes? I don't know about all that. We're all from planet Earth. Amen? God made us. We're all from Adam and Eve. But can I tell you what that phrase is supposed to imply? That we just approach things differently. We approach things differently. And um, uh, look, uh, me and Brother Joe work together. Me and Brother Reggie work together. Um, and the three of us, we have no problem communicating because we're dudes. We're men, right? We, we know how men speak. We know how men communicate. Uh, my wife and I, sometimes we just come at things differently. And there are times where she says something from a view angle that maybe just doesn't set real well with me. And I say things that doesn't really set real well with her. And over 13 and a half years of marriage, almost 14 years of marriage, we've had to learn to appreciate the way the other one's coming at it and be sweet with our words. Hey, and we're still a work in progress. But I can tell you this, we're a whole lot better at it than we were in year one. In year one. And the way you speak to your, your wife, men, the way you speak to your future girlfriend, guys, or girlfriend, is a big deal. And so she says to him, the way he speaks to me is sweet. His verbal sweetness. Letter D. Lastly, notice his virtuous relationship. His virtuous relationship. Look back at verse 16. It says there, his mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. You see that? Now, he refers to her as, go back to verse number 1. Verse number 1, he refers to her as my sister, my spouse. She refers to him as my friend, my friend. You see that this relationship is not just built on romance. This relationship is built on friendship and something far deeper. We talked about godly romance last week, and I'll just circle back around to this point. Boy, men, see your wife as more than just the woman that's going to bury your children and clean your house. View her as your best friend. Ladies, view your husband as your best friend. I, I will, look, I, I, I've never been this type of guy, but I've met guys who are like, oh, I want a, I, I want a, 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 a man's night out, right? Where I'm going to run around with the boys and be friends. And the girls will say, well, I want a ladies' night out. I'm going to go out with my girlfriends and we're going to have a night on the town. We're going to have a great time. Occasionally that's fine. But you know what I would rather do than run around with a bunch of guys and shoot pool or, or, or bowl or play basketball or go out to dinner with a bunch of guys? You know what I'd rather do? I'd rather have a date night with my wife. That's my best friend. That's my best friend. If you're married in here tonight, make your spouse your best friend. Make them your best friend. Have a virtuous relationship. Um, this 
this, um, this uh, Bible study, I have told you all along that it's PG-13 uh, in comparison to everything else, PG-13 and above. And so I'm just qualifying this statement here. Um, a lot of women in marriage feel like nothing more than a sex object by their husband because the husband's rude all day and then wants to be real nice right before it's time to go to bed. You know what? The wife wants to look at him and say, get lost, man. Now you want to be nice. I see what your motives are. You know what, men? If you'd be nice to your wife all day, maybe you'd get what you wanted when it's time to go to bed. Make her your friend. Be sweet. Be kind. And don't do it for ulterior motives. You be loving to each other. You be kind to each other. Ephesians 4.32 Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And I find it really interesting. This isn't just marriage. This is relationships as a whole. The people that we love the most, we oftentimes treat the worst. Let's be kind. Let's have our homes filled with kindness. Bite your tongue if you want to say something mean. You'll never regret what you don't say when you're upset. Sometimes the best thing to do is bite your tongue and walk away. And uh, you, you won't regret it. If you really need to say it, you can say it once you're calmed down in the right tone. So a virtuous relationship. And we looked at the qualities of a Christian husband. Men, it's on us to lead the way. And uh, let's do our best. All right.